Hello and welcome to another Boomtown Daily News Show, Season 2, Episode 119 for April 29th, 2023. It's not a gas, gas, gas oven. Well, let's discuss this. And here's an, a rundown of the articles we'll be talking about. You know, I'm going to try something a little different today. I'm actually going to throw my visualizer onto the screen so that you can see me as I'm doing well, hear my voice, see my voice as I go through the articles. So there's a pot of gold at the intersection of DevOps and generative AI, according to this article. Uh, there's a business case for green sports stadiums and arenas. Mo Willems bossy pigeon makes his operatic debut. This is actually a podcast episode, but we'll talk about it. Finland virtually ended homelessness and we can too. The we is apparently the US. And then there's a thing called an air train that's in China that runs on a magnetic levitation track overhead and glides along 30 feet in the air. The US is cracking down on crypto and Hong Kong is welcoming it in open arms. There's child-free areas on planes that are hugely popular. Our PSA for tonight is General Mills has issued a flower recall over Salmonella. And First Republic worries grow as FDIC asks banks, not Banksy, but banks, hey, um, buy us or we'll have to bail them out. Twitter to soon allow publisher and media companies to uh, charge users per click for articles. How dystopian are we getting? And New York will ban gas stoves in new buildings in an effort to meet uh, emissions reduction goals. And I'm actually considering doing the same. I know it's interesting. Let's talk about it. Hello, hello. I am Marwat and well, hold on. I actually moved over to the article so that I could see something. But anyway, I am Marwat and that is hometown.com. And up there is the AI from on high, the one, the only, the AI that goes by AI. Hello, AI. Hello, Mayor Watt, and good evening, hometown citizens. Hello. Yeah. Hey, wait, what color is your visualizer? Did I think it was orange. Oh, it's orange still. Mm. One of these days, I'll get my act together. Professional strimmer. Um, I've... I've done uh, over 500 and so uh, episodes, but um, I still make mistakes. So I don't know. Maybe the show is. Uh, so it's not a gas, gas, gas stove, according to what's going on in New York. And, you know, there were some other claims earlier in the year that uh, they're coming for our gas stoves and one person like created a bumper sticker that said they can take my gas stove from my dead cold fingers or something like that. Nice. Uh, honestly, if, if a gas stove is that imperative to your life, uh, things are a little rocky. They have to be, they just have to be, but anyway, priorities are a little off. I think eh, different strokes for different folks. Uh, don't yuck other people's yums, that kind of thing. But 
not. I don't know if I would go to the level of having to print out a somebody's made money off of those bumper stickers, I'm sure, because Wingnut's always grabbed stuff like that. But anyway, you want to get into today's articles? I would. Sounds good. Yeah. I, <laughs> so anyway, no, I won't get into it. I just I distracted the the the, uh, the AI was distracted and uh, then I asked a question. So, OK, let's just get into the, today's articles. Um, so this article is over in the Late Night Geeks channel um, because it's come from TechCrunch and ha- is talking about um, generative AI and DevOps and something in it basically said, hey, put this into um the late night geeks channel, which is really about gadgets and technology and stuff like that. But a late night discussion, um, I've yet to actually launch that, but it's great to, if you are interested in this kind of stuff, then, uh, subscribe to late night geeks over on hometown. Um, and let me know here and, uh, we, uh, will spin it up, you know, because I'm usually, uh, working until about two o'clock in the morning anyway. So, I can stream up until then. Easy. Anyway, this is over at TechCrunch, and it says here, why why Combinator demo days, which have been around for um, over a decade, maybe a decade and a half, 15 plus years. I mean, it's been around for a while is what I'm trying to get at. Um, Demo days are a strong indicator of the trends investors might be interested in, and that's one of the main reasons why TechCrunch always watches them pretty closely. In its winter 2023 uh, batch, Three areas stood out. The accelerator said open source, dev tools, and artificial intelligence. So dev tools uh, startups in that batch drew particularly strong interest among investors with four or uh, sorry, with four of them raising additional funds uh, just weeks after demo day. And really, that's kind of like a pitch fest. It shows people what they're doing, what they're capable of, what their vision is, if they have a runway of any uh, length um, and, and where their where they, their real ambition is. Um, but it's kind of a one stop shop to find out if you want to invest. So angels watch it, uh, VCs watch it. Um, and people who are looking to get into that industry would watch it so that they can actually go there and say, hey, uh, here's my resume. Here's my portfolio. Um, well, let's go over to the, the article here. Anna Heim is the author of this over at techcrunch.com. And it says generative AI isn't just about creative endeavors and parlor tricks, investors and big tech alike are betting that it will also affect enterprise infrastructure and cybersecurity, and they are putting money where their mouth is. And this is what Anna says. Um, I'm assuming the Anna here is Anna Heim. Um, And I see that this is pretty much the way that it, really is in the world if this says winter 2023 batch um it seems interesting except that i think that it's a little lagged um so i'm gonna end up going back and looking at this batch a little bit deeper and see when they actually came to fruition um and see if the writing was on the wall a year ago um because these could have been hiding in plain sight, this batch, um, 
and very well situated they're just not presenting themselves public right so like i'm while i have a company i'm not out you know showing people you know that it exists and i kind of pick and choose um well that's what these people can be doing operating in stealth not very public honing their skills developing what their products and services are going to be but if you are aware of this kind of stuff before y combinator demo days then you might be able to get into it and it'll tell you the trend of technology so I always tell people to, if you're into startups, if you're into business, if you're into tech, Y Combinator is definitely something that you should be paying attention to. Um, so I would go and check it out. Now, let me throw this URL over into the chat. Um, I don't know if you have any questions or comments, AI, uh, but happy to no, answer. I don't have anything to add on this one. It's kind of a limited article because of what TechCrunch Plus is. Um, but it's a nice tease to um, the basically they they call it market analysis, but it's really a story in a situation where if you are interested in this kind of thing, go over to this article and uh, click on the links and you'll you'll definitely get a, an interesting batch of information there. It says. Uh, let's see. AI related startups, on the other hand, were very popular with founders representing 34% of the winter cohort. <laughs> yeah. That's very interesting. I'd love to know what the percentage was from last year's batch. Yeah. It was probably like 1% at most. I'd have to go and, and take a look. Obviously, uh, the way that we do the show, though, is we grab the little snippet, um, review it cursory kind of look at it and then um, talk about it and kind of hopefully tease you all into going over to the actual URL through hometown. Um, and in hometown, you can, once you sign up, all you have to do is mash the button and you can reply and uh, get a conversation going. Uh, most of the traffic, however, is really just um, clicking on the links to go over to these news organizations, um, at least for now. Oh, by the way, there were lots of AI-related uh, startups in the winter 22 batch as well. Gotcha. But I didn't get a number. Gotcha. Yeah, we'll have to take a, a look at this and, and maybe analyze this um, for one of the shows. Because we definitely have areas in here. Um, wherein we can talk about it, um, particularly in things like the law related, policy related, um, Hatch Ideas, which is um, all about uh, the startup world and um, technology business, um, pivoting your business if you have one and it might be failing or you're looking for some type of a growth opportunity, um, talk about it um, publicly and, and kind of market. Uh, at any rate, uh, this next article is called um, the well, the title is the business case for green sports stadiums and arenas is growing. Uh, I know several people that are in what would amount to the 
green eco-friendly industry where they go around and get lead certification um, for businesses uh, even buildings that are in the planning stages can get lead certified so that when they are built they're already at one level or another um, but you can always retrofit stuff too well it says the push to make sports stadiums and arenas from the nba to the nhl more sustainable is growing and so is the business case for practices like zero waste this is kind of a tough thing to actually do um, this is over at CNBC by Ian Thomas. And it says, uh, huh? So what I like about this idea is that tons of people watch sports. And so if they have green practices in the stadiums that people are watching, perhaps worldwide, I think that goes beyond just the benefit at the local place and it perhaps gets other people thinking along those lines that maybe wouldn't be the standard community that's um into green or eco-friendly concepts yeah i agree i just hope that like at the end of our articles there aren't somebody there isn't somebody out there that just makes us not be able to have nice things because they take this as a personal attack or an affront on humanity more arenas and stadiums across the U.S. are putting environmentally friendly practices at the forefront. The business case for sustainable buildings is helping as NFL, NBA, and NHL uh, venues are seeing cost savings by adopting zero waste and energy saving efforts. Um, like instead of just having a standard paneled roof, they can put solar panels on it that can power everything, including the, uh, if it has a door on the, uh, you know, a big cover that opens up, then it can like power a itself. Roof or yeah, a retractable roof. Yeah, thank you. That's a big word for the mayor. Um, so as you go down through this article, uh, you know, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, home of both the NFL's Atlanta Falcons and MLS's Atlanta United, became uh, or became the first pro sports venue in the United States to achieve LEED Platinum certification in 2017. Footprint and Center, home of the NBA's Phoenix Suns and WNBA's Phoenix Mercury, uh, works directly with the material science company that holds its naming rights to eliminate single-use plastic from the arena and on other sustainable practices. Yay, 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 all around, right? Um, I would like us to move away from um, plastics. The more that I read about it, the more... Um, I don't want to call it fear, but concerned the more concerned i am for the overall health and longevity of everyone because what's happening is you might think oh well you know i'm not really surrounded by plastic or whatever right you are first off you are if you're watching this then odds on your entire house is wrapped in plastic or your apartment is wrapped in plastic literally because there's Tyvek that's wrapped around your building or some uh, similar product um, in, in, in the walls and on, <laughs> on the fixtures and the cups and all kinds of stuff, right? Are these microplastics? Um, and single-use plastic means that it gets thrown away again after that one use and it breaks down into microplastics. And that actually permeates the ground gets into the food supply and then you consume it even without realizing that you're consuming microplastics so 
What does that really do? Well, it actually penetrates cell walls. It actually ends up in muscle fibers and organs. And um, there is no real stopping it other than eliminating it from the ecosystem. Well, that is probably never going to happen, but maybe a, an alternative, one that might be slightly more expensive, but has a better return on your investment by allowing you to reuse it is more sanitary, um, can store longer. You can possibly protect it from breaking using certain types of materials. Um, there's this oobleck like substance that you can actually now um, coat stuff with. I think it's called D30. Um, it's almost ballistic style material. And um, maybe uh, I'm going to test this. I'm going to get some of it and test it with um, glass to see if it can actually stop like a three foot drop, because that's kind of the typical drop. Um, and if that's possible, then I think that it's a win-win might be more expensive again, but you can use it again and again, you can wash it, etc. Um, and, and it's all part of this doing better for yourself, doing better for the ecosystem, doing better for the planet. Um, and now even, you know, multi-million, multi-billion dollar organizations are seeing the light and they are on the right side of progress. So the bar across uh, sports was set even higher in 2021 when Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle opened up and not only became the first net zero certified arena in the world, but also served as a call to action for Amazon's push for companies globally to be net zero carbon by 2040. Now, this is kind of a misnomer because you can buy your way to net zero, um, but and I don't want to sit there and say, you know, no true X, Y, and Z, but if you're going to be net zero, then you don't just right. buy like, your are way. Are you actually net zero? Are your practices good? Or are you just offsetting somewhere else? Which Correct. again, the offset is good, but it's not the same as just not doing it in the first right. place. In fact, I mean, you should really do both. You should do net zero and, and, and I hate saying these kind of, there's, I'm trying to remember the term for these words. Like when you say something isn't real um, or not a true this or things like that, um, there's a certain terminology in sociology um, for these terms where you basically say that you're not a real this. Um, and that term is, it's just not the right term for what I'm trying to say. But if you are actually net carbon uh, zero, uh, zero, sorry, net zero carbon. Um, and on top of it, you plant trees or you facilitate education somewhere, uh, promoting net zero carbon, then that is where I want you to be. Um, and I would love to be there as well. Um, problem here though, is that the average person can't afford the hundred thousand dollars for solar panels, um, to run a house and uh, a studio and et cetera, et cetera. Um, at least not at first blush, you know, maybe if uh, you get those streamer dollars going, right. Um, YouTube money, <laughs> Twitch money, <clears throat> only fans money. No, wait, sorry. never mind. Um, 
So this article goes into greater detail, but it says uh, it talks about, you know, setting a zero waste goal at at Atlanta's uh, Mercedes Benz Stadium and, and uh, so on. So and there we go. Right. Just like I said a little bit ago, this was the first stadium to be lead platinum um, certified. This is the, the goal. You want to be lead platinum uh, certified. Um, and I actually know somebody that um, pivoted into this as a way of responding to the uh, discussions about peak oil um, more than 30 years ago um, and never looked back. And um, uh, they're a consultant that goes around and does this type of certification. I would not be surprised if they were involved in this um, because it's in that sweet spot where they were um, uh, they're still doing this, but anyway, pretty neat stuff, right? There is, um, if you scroll back down, oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to point out a stat from, okay, there in 2022 fiscal year, there were more than 4 million pounds of waste at the, this is the Atlanta stadium, I think. Mm -hmm. And more than 91% of that was diverted away from landfills. I mean, that's really spectacular. That's absolutely spectacular. I, and you know where it comes from. They know what their waste is. So they have no problem separating it at the point. True. And they're probably choosing more sustainable, easily uh, biodegradable type stuff. And recyclable. And right. they're basically capturing their, their mess. And that remaining 9% is stuff that's probably packaging from third parties that they can't deal with. They have to throw it away um, as waste. I mean, but think of the volume of of um, consumable items that goes through a large stadium. I mean, that's that's a lot of items. Like the percentage isn't probably doing it justice. That's well, no, interesting. I guess we we heard the pounds. I guess so. We have the idea, right, in terms of how much it is. And you'd think that it's the people, right? That might be causing a problem, but it says ultimately the stadium saw more than 95% compliance from fans putting trash in the right receptacles. And it projects a $400,000 yearly return on its initial investment while spending about 13 cents per guest for its overall zero waste efforts right now. Can you imagine if it gets even more efficient, more effective? Right. Which it probably will. I mean, that's sure. really great. Yeah. Um, but it's like I say with other things, um, this this is all about the economic impact. If it doesn't make economic sense, they won't even do the most environmentally sound practice. Um, because if the margin is too great, they just won't pursue it because they can't operate or they they feel they can't operate. But it's usually because there's massive um, stockholders involved. Um, that want, you know, 12 to 18% return on their investment year over year. Right. But this is, I think, a good example of where it can be fiscally uh, sound yeah. or viable. And so maybe others will, will do this as well and kind of follow this example. Yep. Um, and of course, there's somebody that says that it can be confusing about what it really means. Sus sustainability is kind of noisy. ESG is a catchphrase that everyone knows, but doesn't quite know the meaning of. 
Uh, so there are some things that they can demystify about it and they want to help them figure out uh, the things that are relevant to, to them, their specific buildings, specific market, community employers or employees, um, and so on, so that they can really um, focus on the, the unique aspects and, and provide a solution um, that's specific to that build. Um, and that's identical to the lead process as well. Um, it's typically pretty customized, particularly in the retrofit type of sector. Um, but that's funny. At the very end of the of my scroll, they talk about Billie Eilish <laughs> coming on board. That as well. <laughs> that's funny. Did you see her tour rider required them not to use single-use plastics? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think the that society has to kind of apply pressure to the companies that they do business with. And while maybe one person saying something doesn't do much, um, you get enough people asking for it. Yep. It, it all comes down to, direction. um, I give a talk about it. Um, starting a movement. If you want change, you are, you're going to end up, um, you know, I don't know how to, Sometimes I kind of waffle about my words, but like, I want change, but I'm not out there trying to foment a movement because the change that I want isn't incremental. What I want is like a, just a seismic shift in society. Um, but I'm watching it happen and I'm watching it happen with each younger successive generation, um, that actually embraces the the science, the technology, the, the social forces and understands it to a greater degree, doesn't understand, uh, outright greed and oppressive, uh, elements and, um, and, and really does promote, uh, unless you're conditioned into it, you don't want these things that are damaging to society and the world. Um, but <laughs> greed and wealth accumulation certainly is one of those things. Um, at any rate, neat article. I would suggest following the link, um, and going over to it and, and checking it out because, um, I think you'll take more away from it than what we are saying here, but I think we've primed the pump. Let's, um, let's go check out a, an operatic bird. That's, that's new to me. Mo Willems' bossy pigeon makes his operatic debut. This is over in the Smasher Trash. Um, Smasher Trash, by the way, is all about um, music and anything else, really, that you can uh, review and, and talk about. Um, so is it a smash hit or should we trash it? That's the premise of the, the show. Um, Mo Williams' picture book, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, turns 20 <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, oh God. Um, I, you know, I actually, before the show, I saw that, uh, but it didn't really click. Maybe I skimmed right over that, but it's actually 20. Anyway, to mark the anniversary, Willems and Renee Fleming presented the pigeon story in an opera at the Kennedy center. So this is over at NPR uh, not state funded, by the way, you dingbat. Um, less than 1% of its budget comes from any grant funding. 
you dingbat. Anyway, and you know who you are, dingbat. Um, well, Mo Williams' picture book, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, turns 20 this month. To mark the anniversary, Willems and Renee Fleming presented the pigeon story in an opera at the Kennedy Center. I've heard some of it, by the way. Um, as you go through this, uh, this is the transcript for the, uh, um, what is it? What's the actual show? Or yeah, the but the show. the actual script or something. No, the actual show. Oh, um, 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 doggone it. I just, I forgot what it was actually in the show. Scott Simon is the host for it. Oh, God. I am just a cultureless hack. Um, anyway, so Isabella Gomez Sarmiento uh, wrote this article and with Scott Simon interviewed uh, Mo Willems um, and others. And they actually, it's only a three minute listen. So follow the link and, and listen to this. But basically, um, don't let the pigeon drive the bus um, got its inspiration from an actual bird that basically told Mo Willems, don't create the picture book you're working on. Don't write it. Don't do it. It's bad. Do mine. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You said a bird. Yeah. Told him that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I see. I hadn't, I haven't read this, so. Yeah, so the pigeon, uh, okay, so it says uh, Isabella Gomez Sarmiento byline. Mo Willems says most of the characters in his children's books are born in an idea garden. He spends years thinking about them, developing them, figuring out the stories they'll be a part of. But Williams says the pigeon was not that the pigeon showed up one day while I was trying to write a, a great picture book. This before I had ever gotten public or been published. And the pigeon said, don't don't write this. It's not any good. You should write about me. Okay, that's really funny, because if you've read Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, it's totally in keeping with the theme of the book. Yep. Um, Basically, it's saying, let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. Um, so the article continues to go on and has little sound bites. And yes, the it's basically an opera, um, but it <laughs> use it uses uh, phrasing like I'm or sorry, my number one and I'll snuckly fart <laughs> and it has an operatic more silly than the book <laughs> it, it has to be um, because it's an opera and it has an operatic you and a whole cohort of pigeons that say no 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 all at once and uh, sing about the ice cream truck being broken and all kinds of stuff um so yeah it, it's an interesting read. It's inspirational if you're a creative and you want to do something like um, make a book. Um, but there's so much talent out there that this is just one more thing that might give somebody an idea of something to do. Um, and so I, I wanted to really talk about it for a little bit. 
I so was what do you also think? gonna say if you have any kids in your life, whether they're your kids or your families, this is an excellent book for them if if they don't already have it. Yep. Yep. And if you're in a bad mood, you can flip through that and it'll pull you out of your bad mood. So. So what do you think? You want to move on to the next article? I think so. All right. So the next article is over in the Daily News show, how Finland virtually ended homelessness and we can too. Like I said in the in intro, uh, the we, uh, when I say it, is uh, the United States, but I think that this is actually Canada. Um, so Linda McQuaig is the author over at commondreams.org who wrote the article. Um, it's actually from the Toronto Star based on the byline, but... Determined to pack more homeless people into Toronto's overcrowded shelters, officials have come up with a solution. Reduce the number of inches between beds. <clears throat> very humanistic, right? Turns out that the very best thing to do is give people who don't have a place to live a, a place to live. Um, there are certain There's a certain logic to this, and it may be the best that we can do, given our refusal to consider solutions that would actually be innovative. The, the real problem is when there isn't opportunity and you fall out of having a home, then you suddenly are at a massive di uh, uh, disconnect from having the ability to put on an application that you live at X, Y, and Z place. So they ask you about that and you say, well, I'm living in my car um, and uh, suddenly you are a less than stellar employee, even though you could have all the chops necessary. So you lose the opportunity. Right, um, which then just furthers your homelessness because you don't have any income coming. I mean, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. So it says instead of abandoning the homeless, th this is uh, talking about Finland now, they housed them. And that led to an insight. People tend to function better when they're not living on the street or under a bridge. Who would have guessed? This is my level of snark. Probably watered down a bit. Um, so it says it turns out that given a place to live, Finland's homeless were better able to deal with addictions and other uh, problems, not to mention handling job applications. So more than a decade after the launch of the housing first policy, 80% of Finland's homelessness um, or homeless, I should say, are doing well, still living in the housing that they'd been provided with, but now paying the rent on their own. Okay, that's a really spectacular statistic. I'd love to know how many people it is. I mean, I'm yeah. assuming it's a high number, but um, yeah, that's really great. So um, I had been thinking about this as well. Uh, you know, what do you say about this? What do you do about this? But it really is a, a sociological and economic, it's a socioeconomic process. The problem is if society that you're living in doesn't approach people as people, but burdens, unless they're producing something, you'll never move away from treating people as chattel, as a, a waste because they're not producing something so everybody looks down on them, not to mention the plethora of uh, mental health issues that are related to how you ended up homeless. Um, and it could be anything from uh, social within the workplace 
to purely fiscal, which meant that you couldn't get back onto the horse, so to speak, of employment um, because you lost everything or, you know, um, a relationship went bad. And in that you turned to uh, some addictive substance. But you need an anchor. You need something to hold you in place so that you are stabilized. And the only thing that I can ever come up with is 3D printed micro homes. Just print something where everybody has their own bathroom, their own kitchen, their own uh, little living room and a bedroom. Something stable, something solid, something that they can uh, call home and provide what we really need is to provide something that facilitates mental health because when you do get destabilized because you lose your home there's a really good chance that your coping mechanism is survival mode and thus a mental health concern um you know one of the positive things that came out of the pandemic and there aren't that many things i would say but is that mental health has gotten a little more attention. It still has a long way to go, but I think societally we're more cognizant of, hey, mental health actually matters and we need to focus on it, et cetera. That's not the same as actually addressing it with enough resources, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. And, but again, it comes down to the fact that there's a contingent of society that believes that anybody that has mental health issues isn't human, isn't worth the time to facilitate. Right. And, um, so I had somebody, um, present some research that they did, um, recently that had to do with mental health concerns. And at the end of that, I had to exclaim to everybody that was in the room that this by far is not a unique situation, what they were describing, um, which basically was at one point, a person felt that they didn't have anything else to do. So they lashed out. Um, and so I reading the tea leaves said, I think that if you are feeling like this, and you have no other options, then here are some resources you need to um, talk to a professional. There is no shame in it. It means that you're not socio or psychopathic because you know that there is an issue. Go and talk to someone about it. And, and it's very popular, uh, not popular in the good way, but like it's very prevalent, I should say, um, in the a world of the homeless that there are mental health issues and that is the biggest issue for me i think 3d printing a house and giving it plumbing and water or and power and all of that that that's chump change that but that nebulous ephemeral mental health issue is the biggest concern for me even if you put the people in the homes you have to support them somehow um i don't think that this would work in the united states unless the younger generations continue this trend of feeling connected to each other beyond the fiscal or the utilitarian mindset, um, the sociopathic mindset. Um, but my interactions have always been positive. So 
I think we're moving in the right direction as a society here in the United States um, where it's important, which is raising our youth to move away from the, the wing nut. We were doing a great job in society, but some have broken through um, at any rate. Let's uh, did you want to add anything else to this? No, I don't have anything else to add. I don't really know much about Canada's situation, although I suspect they have similar challenges to the U.S. They do. Yeah. Um, so, okay, the, the next article is over in the Daily News show, an air train in, Ch uh, in China. What? China? What? What's that word? How do you? My brain just flipped a switch there. An air train in China runs using an overhead magnetic track never touching it as it glides through the air 30 feet above the ground. And we're going to see it in action. I'm not quite sure why they used such flowery language in the uh, title, but here we go. No, it doesn't uh, even look like a title. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a paragraph. Right. Um, so businessinsider.com is the source for this. Sarah Jackson is the author. And it really just looks like a tram, but it's using a maglev bar. Um, and so this right here and the rail that sits underneath it basically um, is like a T-track. And sitting in that T-track is um, superconductor magnets and they couple onto it and float inside a magnetic field or on a magnetic field and it just slides around um if the power was on you could probably move it with one hand um because there's near zero resistance um i love this kind of stuff but anything fall out of alignment or power turn off it if it doesn't have a backup generator Right. Yeah, it seems like the risk could be quite high. Like, it's great when it's working, right? Right. But if it's not working. Yep. So it says China's red rail air train glides through the air without touching the track above it or anything below. Um, it's not wizardry. This is not Harry Potter. This is pretty basic science. Um, they've been in existence for a long time. Um, and it's either one way or the other, it's either underneath it and it's maglev or it's on top and hovering and it's maglev, but, um, it can operate without power gliding through the air without ever making contact with the track above it. And there's no rail underneath it. It says that it can operate without power, but I'd have to look at this, um, because it may be able to for a time, but it says that it uses permanent magnets. So right, maybe it's the world's first suspended, by the way, but at least with permanent magnets, there might be ones that use other mechanisms. Correct. So it says that it's a, a maglev train system that uses permanent magnets. So this may be uh, honestly legit for being um, the first of this type, but I really, now I have to really dig a little deeper into this because um, it, the technology there for a permanent magnet to be able to hold that much weight with kinetic energy 
Yeah, I'll have to look um, to see more about this. It's said to be the first uh, suspended magnetic levitation or maglev train that uses permanent magnets. Um, those are magnets that have a magnetic field even when there's no power. Um, the, the things that hold your uh, paper on your refrigerator is a permanent magnet. Um, electromagnets uh, or superconductive magnets uh, or superconductors, I should say, um, magnetic systems like that, they need power and extreme cool. Sorry, you were going to say something? No, no, I think that might be the distinction. Like I suspect there are electromagnet suspension maglev trains already in existence. Yeah. Um, I mean, I like the thing that doesn't require power. That seems like that could be safer potentially. So it allows it to you to run without electricity. I find that interesting. It has to have resistance though. Um, but okay, we'll see. I'm, I'm really curious about this. Um, and since this is the first time that I've seen this article and this train, I'll have to do some due diligence um, to talk about it specifically um, from a point of um, direct experience with it. Um, so I'll do that. And uh, we'll probably circle back around when, um, uh, <laughs> without a doubt, another article is going to come up regarding this, particularly with people that are saying, ah, there's something weird going on here. So the train still had to go through test runs after construction was complete, like anything else. It uh, is suspended about 33 feet above the ground and um, can carry, the two cars can carry 88 passengers total. Um, and its experimental phase, in its experimental phase, the track is 800 meters long or half a mile. Um, the train can reach speeds of up to 80 kilometers per hour or about 50 miles per hour. Okay, so there's your technical limitations. Um, so it's somewhat lightweight. It doesn't move fast enough for it to make contact with the, mag the magnetic rail. It doesn't um, have um, multiple cars. The track currently is pretty short. Yeah, this is a, a it's a test ride, so. I think it's interesting, but I really want to know more. There's, there's, there's something else here that I would love to, to learn more about. Um, because that's quite the contraption that they have here. The, this, um, this, uh, strut that they use is pretty heavy duty to be nothing more than just a, a, it's a square tube for crying out loud. I, why would you fabricate a square? tube if all it is is permanent magnets that can't be suspended above it it has to be between the 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 fitting on the track and the train itself dunk like that um there's no other way to really do that um so i'm really curious i'm but i mean it's coming out of china i i won't be able to get any fundamental science on this but no, i am we'll um, see more articles on it i'll i'll go looking because uh, i find this kind of stuff really fascinating uh, i would love to have high-speed trains in the united states but the ones that they want to make just want to fling themselves off the but track i want to stay on the tracks so yeah. hopefully yeah. this system has a different uh has more Al safety features even trains have allergies. It's like that book, Everybody Poos. 
all the tracks or all the trains have allergies. Uh, maybe I could do that. I'll talk to chat G GPT and see if it'll write a book called all the trains have allergies. No, that doesn't sound very uplifting. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I mean, I can be snark snarkier, funny. So the next article is over in the late night geeks channel as the U S cracks down on crypto, Hong Kong extends a warm welcome. On a balmy day in mid-April, thousands of people queued in the line to enter the Hong Kong Convention Center, where the city's inaugural Web3 festival was underway. Yay, Web3. Keyword bingo, did you win? Yes. Uh, most had flown in from mainland China, but many others had trekked from Singapore, Japan, Indonesia, Thailand, and even the U.S. to see what the city had to offer to crypto ventures at a time Regulation over digital assets is intensifying in the U.S. Yeah. Um, this is actually kind of important, by the way, for another article that we'll be talking about. <laughs> uh, but we'll get there here in a minute. Um, having to do with a bank. and Oh, yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So um, they, Hong Kong proposed a set of welcoming rules to regulate crypto-related activities under the new legal regime. Um, retail investors will be allowed to trade certain digital assets on licensed exchanges, replacing a 2018 framework that restricted trading to only accredited investors. Talk about expanding the amount of risk. Exactly. I was like, mm, I'm not sure this is the direction to go, but okay. And then to refer to this, this is such a batshit crazy embodiment. Like it's, it's espousing low risk, stable in its stability in its very name. The city is also paving the way to legalize stable coins. One startup, which is backed by popular exchange KuCoin and USDC issuer Circle, recently launched an offshore Chinese yuan pegged stablecoin, the first of its kind in greater China. So a stablecoin is supposed to not be impacted. It's kind of like the crypto's version of the US dollar, where there aren't massive fluctuations, kind of like Bitcoin has, you know, $3,000 swings over the course of a couple of days. Um, a stablecoin does not suffer from that, except, well, I don't know. With unaccredited uh, investors, and even with some more swings with uh, anybody that's in crypto, you never know what they are actually oh, yeah. doing until it's too late. And so you end up with like Silicon Valley Bank, which didn't have anything to do with crypto, but they overextended in other ways and weren't monitored adequately enough and weren't monitoring themselves adequately enough or FTX, which was nothing but crypto and imploded and had a stable coin that it actually gave to people uh, yeah. as compensation for work done. And that imploded. And we've seen how well things go in the financial sector when there's no oversight, essentially. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, well, if you get wildly rich because they're on the, uh, you know, they're connected to some way with the policy and procedures. So they know what the hell to do, when to do it and how to get out of Dodge in time while all the rest of the suckers get 
you know, buried in the waste that falls on them. You know, I mean, some of this, some of these uh, economic policies and procedures that are being put in place around the world is a super fun site where all of the money has been made, but the hot mess is still there for the rest of society to clean up. Anyway, the article that we're talking about is as the U.S. cracks down on crypto, Hong Kong, Hong Kong extends a warm welcome. It's by Rito Lau. Um, and uh, it's over at TechCrunch. So TechCrunch Plus is the, the source of it. So sometimes their articles aren't as uh, available, but this one looks like it has uh, quite a bit of detail in it. Um, but all it takes really is the United States to say, we're not interested anymore. We're not going to allow um, crypto to be traded into U.S. dollars because it's like money laundering or something like that. Right. Um, or it's putting some type of risk on various institutions. We already saw FTX. We've already we're going to hear about more coming on here, but the risk may be so. A company, a, a bank or an organization doesn't have to be directly in crypto to be impacted by its shenanigans because the organization that the bank invests in might be invested in crypto and not have disclosed it adequately to the bank that's doing the investing. Um, and thus they don't get their money back. It's not FDIC insured. It's uh, all done um, in backroom deals in the dark. Um, and you end up with basically an implosion of the economy and guess what's coming. FTX so it says implosion is listed in here. <laughs> oh, there it is. Look at that. Yeah. The tightening of us regulation, um, after the FTX implosion, uh, has a few consequences in the past. Several American banks played the key role in linking the traditional and crypto worlds, but that link is now broken, which presents a great opportunity for Hong Kong to step up, said Mao, who is amicably known as discus fish in the crypto community, literally learning nothing from. Well, that's exactly it. Let's see what just went wrong. And I'm sorry, do we really want to follow FTX, somebody's yeah. advice named Discus Fish? I mean, oh, sure. <laughs> no, don't do that. No, no, no. Come on. You know, sometimes you want to listen to a fish. Blub, 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 blub. No, come on. I grew up with handles, call signs. So. True, but do the people that know the ins and outs of the financial industry necessarily go by handles? Not always. This person may. I don't know this individual. Nowadays, I'm going to have to work with this AI. <laughs> yeah, nowadays, nowadays, very... People who grew up in the air in in the high tech industry will have something that might be um, a, a call sign or a handle or a nickname. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is um, first off a, a managed economy where you don't really get the full numbers, um, and uh, this could be propped up so much uh with 
shenanigans that by the time it is actually discovered, a lot of people are going to get hurt um, and maybe even amplify a, a global economic, well, shutdown. Uh, just it'll make things worse um, because things just aren't on the up and up. So I don't know. This could be great. I really doubt it. Um, I think it'll it'll just kind of blend into the background noise and we won't hear of it again um, because it's just a thing that's idling, making some people filthy rich, but not the not all of society better. Well, and we tend to only hear about these things if and when there is a complete meltdown like the FTX scenario. True. Very, very true. Um, let's move on. The next article is over in the daily news show. Child-free areas on planes are hugely popular. I was going to soapbox a little bit about this thing, but it's really, let's just say, okay. It says exclusive research on behalf of Newsweek has revealed that most people would prefer a child-free zone on public transport. Yeah. (laughs) Why? We can't have nice things because of bad parenting. Right. It's not the kids that are the problem. I want an adult free zone on <laughs> A people As in free. No people around me, really. <laughs> exactly. Right? It, it 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 isn't about the child. It's about the parent. It's about starting early and teaching a child to be respectful of the people that are around them. This is why you have uh, people that are very abusive to uh, everyday people on the regular. I mean, it's really shocking um, what goes on. Um, I've heard people yelling at uh, wait staff at restaurants and complete strangers in the streets. And I'm, I'm just astonished, you know, um, it almost is triggering me, by the way. So let me let me just be really quick about this. Child-free areas on planes are hugely popular because the parents don't know how to control their children in an adequate manner because they think it's somebody else's purpose. It's not my fault that my kid is horrible. It's it's the whole world. And kids are kids. No, kids are kids and they act a certain way because their parents allow them to act a certain way or their parents act that way. And I learned it from you, mom. So Alice Gibbs put this article together and it says, follow these tips to be a model airline or airplane passenger, which may or may not have to do with this article. But the article says from curbing boredom to keeping screaming at bay, traveling with children isn't easy, isn't always easy uh, for both the family and for the passengers. Um, And the one time where it's really a struggle, like it's beyond bad parenting, right? It's out of the hands of bad parenting is the natural um, inability of infants to communicate outside of crying. So you have to intuit from their behavior what the real problem is. And it could be the reason why they're crying is because they can't equalize and they have no other way to let you know than crying. Um, or they're bored out of their mind, or they are hungry, or they don't want to be there, or whatever it might be. But you as a parent have to work really hard to solve that particular problem. That said, we are also a society. So I suppose if you want a service, 
voice is going to carry in an airplane or in public transport or whatever. So you, society is going to have to open up to having child cars and child free cars if that's what society wants. Um, but I'm willing to guess, I'm willing to bet, not a lot of money, but I'm willing to bet that I'll bet a dollar that 99.99% of all of the child related issues parental born. Oh, absolutely. I can think of an incident recently near hometown where a child was really misbehaving. The parent was clearly at the root of it. And all it took was a momentary diversion from a stranger to get the kid kind of back in line. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Just engage a little bit. Yep. So all right, so let's move on. The next article is over in uh, the Daily News show as well. I'll throw that in, over into the chat so that you can follow it. Again, it's over at hometown.showbot.tv. General Mills issues a flower recall after salmonella. Salmonella. It's such a goofy word, but anyway, a salmonella discovery. General Mills has issued a nationwide recall of its bleached and unbleached flour after discovering salmonella while sampling a five pound bag. So this is in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where it's uh, written, but it's an Associated Press article that is published at abcnews.go.com. So I don't have a name, um, but suffice it to say, the company is recalling two, five and 10 pound uh, bags of its gold metal, unbleached and bleached all purpose flour with a better if used by date of March 27th, 2024 and March 28th, 2024, according to a notice posted Friday on its website. So you wouldn't have known about it <laughs> unless you went to ABC News or by proxy hometown. So tell a friend um, because this is probably one of the biggest suppliers, if not the biggest supplier of all-purpose flour. Well, and the thing that really concerns me is that if maybe they're not selling in these quantities to commercial sources, but think about all of the restaurants and bakeries yeah. and yeah. everybody that uses flour. But again, these are smaller, like consumer size. So maybe that's not an issue. Yeah, so uh, I guess the chances of it harming you is pretty low, but anything that isn't adequately heated through baking, frying, or boiling could contain salmonella unless it's verified that it's clean. So return it, contact it, uh, you know, contact General Mills Consumer Relations at the number 1-800-230-8103. Um, or if you uh, have consumed something and you are not feeling well, then go to the ED post haste and, and um, discuss it with a doctor or a professional to find out maybe if you've been exposed to salmonella. Um, it's basically food poisoning, um, but if you are immunocompromised um, or otherwise, if it uh, takes hold too much, it can harm you uh, to a greater extent. Sound good? You want to move on to the next article? Sure. Cool. So the next article is the one that I was hinting at about the cryptocurrency issue. Really doesn't have anything to do with this, at least at first blush. But 
one stressor and one economic forum impacts the rest, that's the knock-on effect of uh, global economies, First Republic worries grow as FDIC asks banks for bids by Sunday, tomorrow, to avoid bailout. Beleaguered bank First Republic is now facing buyout bids after the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation sought to arrange suitors Saturday following um, a hollowing out of the bank's share price amid several weeks of market turmoil, multiple outlets reported. So this is this this kind of stuff happens because so much concentrated wealth is in control of one institutional uh, venue that when a panic arises, it isn't the minutia of people that do it. It's the bulk. It's the one it's the the large money holders that sit there and say, oh, I'm pulling my money out, which solidifies any liquidity. Uh, the bank might have and as they describe it hollowing out of the bank's share price which to me the share price is meaningless unless the share price is held by the bank itself because companies in the last 10 years have had record profits record buybacks record concentration of wealth and they're literally doing it to themselves but the knock-on effect of their actions is ruinous to the common person who can't weather that storm. I would say two things, and I talked about some of this when we were talking about it, I think, F, or not FTX, um, probably Silicon Valley Bank. Um, one, I would generally expect a bank share price not to fluctuate greatly. And two, I agree, I don't really care about the share price, except if it suddenly tanks, um, that's probably a major red flag to anybody who's got investments or accounts, et cetera. Um, so I don't really care if it's going up or down, but if it's suddenly going from like a hundred to $1 a share, something is seriously wrong. Yeah. It just seems so blacklist, you know, there's something hinky going on and, and nobody truly knows. Carl Evers Hillstrom is the author of this article over at thehill.com um, and talks about the fact that uh, San, the San Francisco-based bank, uh, First Republic, which had $212 billion in assets at the end of last year, has seen its stock price plummet 87% over the last two weeks as large depositors... You called it... <laughs> pulled their funds. So First Republic came into the crosshairs of larger competitors this week after worries about the banking sector continued to target the company following the collapse of fellow community uh, institution Silicon Valley Bank uh, last month. So wait, let me, I need to verify something. Yeah, okay. So First Republic Bank, for whatever reason, suddenly came under fire. So who are the large depositors that are pulling out? Well, and if I'm not mistaken, I thought First Republic was reported around the time of Silicon Valley. But it was maybe in, I'm mix, mixing bank names. It was in... It was in um, it was being investigated. 
Um, okay. As far as I recall, Silicon Valley Bank um, was imploding. First Republic was on like everybody's radar as being an issue. Um, and First Citizens Bank is the one that bought Silicon Valley Bank. That's so, probably the name I'm actually thinking of. But. So um, it says a buyout by another financial institution would help regulators avoid the type of bailout offered to Silicon Valley Bank when it fell apart in mid-March. Because what's going to end up happening is the coffers are going to run dry. There isn't an unlimited number of funds that are in this, you know, uh, well, account that will allow FDIC to go beyond the a $250,000 limit for typical accounts. The, the, again, the, the real problem here is that banks are for profit with stock and, and stockholders. And so it's seen as an investment unto itself instead of using the funds as investment instruments and measuring out, hey, this person has a good business plan, we'll offer them uh, a loan with X return on investment so that the institution can operate right with a moderate level of profits what they are doing is trying to appease stockholders and because of that they have to amplify they have to increase the return on investment to cover that increase in the stock which um, means that's, they then need to take on increased risk typically correct yeah because if if what they look at if it was nothing more than their internal rate of return and they weren't looking at stock, it was just them. Um, they may say, well, we only need 5% growth, which means that they can issue a loan for 8%. And the juice on top of that 5% is something that they can use not just for their own mechanisms of profit, but they can take that money and loan it out again. It's kind of like paying it forward. But when suddenly you have a bunch of stockholders and a board that's demanding that you increase it year over year by 10 to 25% profit, you suddenly have to start demanding either higher risk or you demand higher interest rates from the people that are repaying these loans. So the article says what happened to First Republic Bank? The bank runs that sparked the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank have investors and depositors worried that First Republic could be the next domino to fall. But even a buyout of First Republic, pardon me, I need to pull something up. Um, even a buyout of First Republic could be hampered by regulations and the issue of larger banks gaining unfair market share advantage. Well, that's mergers and acquisitions in the face of a collapsing market. Wherein these people were too risky for their britches and operating, I think, in a way that wasn't secure. So it says JP Morgan is among a small number of giant banks that have already amassed more than 10% of nationwide deposits, making the firm ineligible under U.S. regulations to acquire another uh, deposit-taking institution. So perhaps this will just collapse. Right, because I'm assuming there's a small number of banks that could um, take this over. And if they're limited, like JP Morgan Chase, then maybe others are as well. Yes. <laughs> wow. 
Um, so it says the mass withdrawal was sparked by the fact that 68% of First Republic's deposits were uninsured, meaning they were above the FDIC $250,000 limit, a higher rate than many other uh, regional banks. So again, it's risk. Um, so obviously there's more to it, um, but big money is going to scoop up the little money, which means that big money is going to get even bigger. That concentrated wealth means that there are a very few that are in control of the U.S. and by knock-on, the global economy. And that is something I truly fear. That there's only a handful of people that through nepotism and uh, backroom deals and uh, manipulating things hand-in-hand uh, in hand with the government they end up in control of the whole, well, the nation and the world. It sounds conspiratorial and batshit crazy, but if you look, there, there's only one direction that this is going, and it's not into breaking up into Myriad Bank, like what was done to AT&T, which eventually reconstituted as a cell phone company. Again, Massive organization, abused shit, got broken up into little companies, reconstituted, and now charging the same amount, if not more, the same crappy customer service, the same kind of uh, creepy policy, working hand in hand with agencies, um, buying up sponsor, <laughs> yeah, buying up another organization, and then. It completely sucks and then breaking it off, but not truly breaking it off. I mean, there's a lot of this just inbred, like nepotistic garbage going on. You know, if your company can't survive, then dissolve your company, sell it to somebody wholesale, but don't sit there and just hold on to it till it's driven into the ground, impacting thousands or hundreds of thousands of other people. And then Somebody buys it in a fire sale and they're a, they're a mega corporation. They have everything that you did, but now it's going to be even more abusive. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed really by all of the stuff that's going on. And I, I you know, when I talk to people about information overload, when your brain starts thinking about all of the other things, not just that bit of information, man, it just really sucks the energy right out of you. So let, let's, let's move on. Um, I, I want to get to these last two articles. Um, this next article is, uh, in the mobile channel, Twitter to soon allow publishers, media companies to charge users per click on articles. Twitter will soon allow publishers and media outlets to charge users per click on articles that they post on the platform, according to CEO Elon Musk, who announced this on Saturday. Musk said in a tweet that the platform will roll out the policy next month, which he said would allow users who do not sign up for a monthly subscription to a publication or pay more or to pay more per article if they want an occasional article. So it says should be a major win-win for both media orgs and the public. He said 
The announcement comes amid increased tensions between Musk and at least some media outlets. Um, Jared Gans over at the Hill put this article together. I don't see how this is a win-win for anybody. It's not. You know, I mean, these organizations should be running a website. It should be publicly accessible with advertising on it, just like a newspaper used to be. You could pay for it, but it was 25 cents and you get all of that news. Are you telling me that they're making less money today online than they are newspapers in the uh, physical world? Well, if they are, it's because of advertisers, but advertisers want uh, analytics, conversion on the ad, etc. You don't get that from a newspaper. You get that kind of stuff from functional advertising on a website. One that truly elicits a want for a product. I have not clicked on an ad in 30 years unless I was, I lost a bet or in a drunken stupor, which doesn't happen. So heh, I have not clicked on an ad in 30 years. Um, but advertising largely is a performance. So it's in your head. It's always present. When you passively see a Coca-Cola ad, then you go, I really want a Coca-Cola because it's always been there. It's ever present. When you see FedEx, you know that you're going to be getting a package, that kind of a thing. It's, it doesn't actually require you to click on it, but organizations want conversion. They want analytics. They want to know what's going on. This isn't going to get me or anybody else clicking on an article to pay for it. No, in fact, it's going to go in the other direction. I would rather just go to the website and read it there. And if all of the articles end up being behind a paywall, guess what everybody does online? There's somebody out there, some good Samaritan that will copy the article wholesale and post it somewhere. Why? Because information yearns to be free and exchanged ideas like information yearns to be free and exchanged. You pay for the product and the service, but the information, somebody out there is going to read this statement, right? Should be a major win-win for both media orgs and the public, right? And then they pass it on. They talk to somebody else. Hey, you know, Elon Musk said it should be a major win-win when they activate this click for an article, pay for performance kind of thing. I don't know. Just make it a reasonable price. $100, $50,000 a month for a public service to post their tweets is batshit crazy. You know, $100 for access to a website that is doing the same thing as everybody else, getting information from various publicly disclosed sources you know there's very few news organizations where it's like cutting edge um uh, invasive and uh, interrogative type of interviews um and and when it is it's few and far between so i don't know i i think that this is just going to create some friction and people aren't going to really follow it I mean, isn't think? that everything coming out of Twitter? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I agree. I just mean it's like one more thing. 
right? All right. Well, I think that this is this one is just done. So let's move on to the next article. Um, and this is uh, where our namesake is from for the, today's uh, episode. It's not a gas, gas, gas oven. Because in the Daily News show, this little snippet comes uh, by way of the Business Insider. Uh, New York will ban gas stoves in new buildings as part of its new budget agreement. It represents a win for environmentalists who hope to reduce the state's resilience or reliance, sorry, reliance. I don't know why I said resilience. Reliance on fossil fuel. The GOP vilified similar pro- uh, propositions earlier this year enlisting gas stoves into the culture war. And frankly, I don't, I, I get it and I don't get it. You know, it's faster to heat up something, um, blah, blah, blah. But for crying out loud, it's releasing fumes into your house, but it, it falls in line with the, well, you know, I was ignorant of it. So obviously it didn't happen. Um, wait, what were we talking about? Oh, um, gas leaking into my environment causes memory loss. Really? Oh, yeah. So you know what doesn't cause it? (laughs) Eating something up on an electric stove. Hey, does it take a little bit longer to get to speed? Yeah, sure. But with newer technologies and more capable uh, electrical systems, we get up to the same temperature. Um, and it's ever increasing faster and faster, you know, anyway, let's, let's go over to the article itself over at businessinsider.com. Katie Belovic, uh, might be Belovich. I'm not sure is the author of this. And it says, uh, it represents a win for environmentalists who hope to reduce the state's resilience. Why do I keep saying resilience reliance on fossil fuel? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I also wonder, I mean, this sounds great. This is new buildings, though. How many right. buildings in New York are being built versus maybe upgraded or whatever? And does that apply to them? Uh, I don't think that I think everything is grandfathered in perpetually. Um, so the bulk of old world development is going to remain gas. But the problem with gas is that it's much, much, much more difficult to deliver the service in highly populated areas because you can't just easily dig up the ground and run new pipes and meet the command, the demand of the new building you, but with electricity, it's literally just running a cable and you don't have to worry about some kink somewhere causing a gas leak that blows up a city block. Does that actually happen? I don't know how often that happens, but yeah, gas leaks happen. Um, So among them is a ban on natural gas in new buildings, a proposition that previously led to a frenzy of right-wing panic. And that's all that the right-wing knows. Panic, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, as if their life is truly going to be negatively impacted by anything associated with this. Um, For environmental advocates, it's a win. Uh, It says Democrat. A Democratic New York Governor Kathy Hochul said the budget deal was a race to the right results, whatever that means. Um, the new budget is expected to uh, be approved by a vote 
as early as next week. And then they say, I know this budget process has taken a little extra time, but our commitment to the future of New York was driving this, Hochul said. Is that how they pronounce their last name, Hochul? H-O-C-H-U-R. I've never heard it pronounced. Yeah. So the ban on natural gas in new buildings will phase in at the end of 2025, and it will not apply to current gas stove owners, according to the Times. So even this article came from the Times, which probably came from... Um, something else you know if i click that link it'll probably t- take me to something that says that it came from dot 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 anyway yeah good luck everybody the s- switching to electric isn't gonna do a darn thing hello lucas how are you welcome to the show you came right at the very end if you are not familiar with what the hometown daily news show is, it is a daily show at nine o'clock for about an hour. We're looking at an hour and a half today that goes over about 10 articles and um, it's coming to you by way of hometown.com, which is my custom made news aggregation system so that I could deal with information overload. And uh, breaks it into six main categories and about 50 channels underneath it based on a focused topic. And then I talk every day along with the AI. You want to say hi? Hello, I'm the AI. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for you. uh, So I typically ask if it's okay to mention what you uh, say in uh, my chat at least once. Um, so, uh, since this is the first time you've been here, um, would it be okay to say what you just wrote? Just let me know. And I'll keep talking about this because we're at the actual end, but at the end, I always bring everybody back to the welcome sign, which doesn't exist anymore. Cause I took it down. You're all welcome still. And, uh, when you click this sign, it says, Hey, here's 50 more articles, but Wait, there's more, because when you scroll down, there are page after page after page of headlines and within them, and I'll just grab one real quick so that um, I can show you. So it says here, like this Washington Post article, it says um, Elon Musk describes Starship flight as uh, roughly what I expected. So you click that and you get pulled into the actual article snippet that's provided by the source, and then you click on that and that'll take you to the Washington Post. And then I describe, you know, it's from Christian Davenport and it's something having to do with um, SpaceX and the fact that the rocket decided to take the afternoon off. Um, So, Lucas, uh, thanks for coming and hanging out. And uh, you said it's not nine o'clock where you are. It's 425. So welcome, fellow night owl um, uh, or early to rise owl. I'm not quite sure how to (laughs) phrase that, but um, I'm happy to see you here. And uh, thanks for swinging by. I really do appreciate it. Um, The news that we cover is uh, decidedly more United States than others, um, but we cross into every other country where relevant, um, typically uh, Europe and the UK, uh, Australia, Um, some of uh, South Africa, some of uh, South America, 
Um, and again, wherever relevant, all throughout every continent and every country. Um, so we really, we're, we're agnostic except for the fact that it has to be in English because everything has to be moderated by uh, a person that is decidedly English. So anyway, um, really appreciate it. Thanks for swinging by and I hope to see you tomorrow. We are done for tonight, though. So thanks. I'm going to go back to the very front page here and, and bring us back to the very front and again, there's always something new. Oh, gosh, I don't even like ending with that on the top of the screen. Is there nothing? Yeah, I don't know. All right, that's it. I'm Merwat. That's hometown.com. And up there is the AI. You want to say bye, AI? Good night, hometown citizens, or good morning, depending on your time zone. We'll see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Good, good morning, good afternoon, and good night. Bye-bye. <laughs> God, did it just do that? Yeah, it did. Bye-bye. <laughs>